Now, chapter 18 and chapter 19 was what we call the Sodom cycle, because we think of the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's really not. It's a whole mess of stories that all really combine to be one narrative, and that's when the Lord came to visit Abraham and announced that Sarah was going to have her baby in less than a year, and Abraham's intercession, and the angel is trying to lead Lot out of Sodom, and the, of course, terrible story of Lot and his daughters, which we looked at last time. And Abraham comes out of that sequence looking pretty well. (laughs) He's come out of it. He's not been part of what was going on in Sodom. And of course, the contrast between him and Lot and of course him and the Sodomites themselves is, is a pretty favorable one for him. He received the Lord when the Lord came. He reaffirmed the promise to Abraham and he all in all comes out looking pretty good. And chapter 21 is going to finally tell the story of the birth of Isaac, the birth of the promised son, finally. But just before we get there, we have chapter 20. And chapter 20 is the story of Abraham and Sarah lying again to another foreign king about Sarah being Abraham's sister and not his wife. And once again, they're almost going to lose everything. If you have ever found yourself doing the same stupid sin more than once, doing something that you said, I'll never do that again, that was so dumb, I would never go back there. If you should have learned your lesson, but then went right back and did it again, even if it was years later, this is the story for you. (laughs) Because that's exactly what Abraham did. Now, of course, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves when we fail. There's something good about feeling guilty when you've done something that, has guilt attached to it. We ought to repent. We ought to pray. We ought to try our best to do better. We ought to do what Jesus said and chop off the hand that caused us to sin and all that stuff. But this passage, as I was reading it, I was surprised, but it does not spend time talking about the gravity of Abraham's sin, although it was an awful thing that he did, but it focuses more on the weight of God's grace towards him and Sarah. Now, I've taught many times, and will teach again, the sermon of get it right. (laughs) We need those. But in this story, we're going to see that even though Abraham didn't get it right, God was still on his team and was still fighting for him. And the good news for us is that we as Christians have been chosen by our Lord for eternal salvation. That's his grace. And that grace enables us to fail but to get up and keep trying. It testifies that God is on our team, that even when we fail, God is still at work in our lives, bringing us forward and fighting for us. The true liberation that you can have from understanding God's grace, you can't overstate that. To know that your failures no longer affect your standing with God is real freedom. And there's all kinds of ways this can be taken to weird extremes, but we're not going to do any of that, and we're not going to worry about those that do. We're just going to get really excited about the fact that the Lord has incredible grace and incredible patience with us. So let's read this. Chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, and we'll end up doing the whole chapter tonight. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Deja vu, huh? 
Well, this chapter finds Abraham on the move again. It says, from there, there would mean from Mamre, which is where Abraham had pitched his tents. We talked about the big trees, the terebinths and the oaks at Mamre, where he dwelt mostly. But we also know from the stories and also from other passages in Scripture that Abraham was a perpetual sojourner. He was always traveling. He was always moving. He didn't build foundations and build a house. He had tents, so sometimes his herds had to move to find where the food was, and he wasn't really tied down to any one place. Now, last time we saw Abraham leave the promised land and go to Egypt, it was because of a famine. This time, it does not say that there was a famine or any such thing that caused him to leave. I'm inclined to think that it might have been Sodom's destruction that caused him to leave. Who wants to stick around (laughs) when that's going on? Who wants to be around there observing and seeing all that? We don't know. It doesn't say. But it's interesting to note that We talked about this last time, and we're going to talk about it today. While Abraham should have stayed to the land where God sent him, neither time in chapter 12 or here in chapter 20 does it attribute blame to Abraham for leaving. So we want to be careful about that, about saying, well, Abraham shouldn't have left in the first place. Maybe, but the passage never says that. So maybe, maybe not. There are a few things he did that we know he shouldn't have done, and we can focus on those. Now, as for when this happens... We know that in chapter 18, verses 10 and 14, when the Lord came to Abraham's tent, he told him, Isaac is going to be born about a year from now. So chapter 21 is when Isaac is going to be born. So we would assume that chapter 20 happens sometime within that year, if it is chronological. And sometimes the Bible goes out of order, but it seems like this story fits in this spot. And let's talk about the geography a little bit. It says he goes to the Negev. The Negev is the desert south of the Promised Land, when you go down south here. And it says he was going to live between Kadesh and Shur. Kadesh is the infamous Kadesh Barnea from the sojourn of the Israelites when they refused to go into the Promised Land. That happened at Kadesh Barnea. Now Shur, you'll remember, that's where Hagar was going when she was running away and she was going towards Shur and the angel of the Lord appeared and sent her back. So it's in this southern region between Egypt, the wilderness, and the promised land where Abraham, it says, was living. Now Gerar is to the north of that, just a little bit southwest of Mamre, where this story is going to take place. So I don't know why he was living down here and then sojourning up here. Maybe it was just a broad area. The Negev is pretty big. It could be that he spent most of his time between Kadesh and Shur. It could be that he just stopped in Gerar for some reason. Does not explain. This says he was spending time there in the Negev, which is the farthest extremity of the land of Canaan. And he ends up in Gerar. It's actually interesting. He says he sojourned in Gerar. The word Gerar comes from the same word family as the word sojourner or stranger. So the Hebrew there is vayagar bigrar. It all kind of rhymes and kind of sounds alike. So it's not a symbolic name on purpose. That was the name of the place. But it is interesting that Abraham was going to sojourn in a town called Sojourner, which means to, of course, be a non-citizen where you're living. And Gerar was a Philistine city. It does not mention that in this passage. Perhaps they were not called Philistines yet, but I don't know. The Philistines, according to chapter 10, when it gave us that long table of nations, you might remember that, they were descendants of Ham, who was the youngest son of 
Noah, and Egypt, who was the son of Ham. So the Philistines were related to the Egyptians, but their culture was very similar in a lot of ways to the Phoenician culture, which would have been Tyre and Sidon up in the north, and to Greco-Roman culture as well. So these coastal cities, these Mediterranean cultures, had a lot of the same gods, a lot of the same traditions. It's even been suggested that maybe the Philistines were Cretans. They came from the island of Crete and then came into the land of Canaan. The word Palestine, which is sort of a neutral way to refer to the land of Israel, comes from the word Philistine, which is why there are a lot of people, especially Jews, who do not like the name Palestine. Because they're saying, don't call it the Philistines' land. We, we fought that battle for years. And this is the first time we're going to see the Philistines, although they're not going to be the enemies of God's people that they will be during Saul and David's time. But it is interesting to note that there's a lot of firsts in the book of Genesis. Now, we've seen this story played out before, haven't we? In chapter 12, verses 10 through 20, Abraham and Sarah, or Abram and Sarai, as they were called at the time, went to Egypt because of the famine. They lied and said that she was his sister, and Pharaoh took her as his wife. That was in chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. In Genesis chapter 20, they go to Gerar, the Philistine city, and they do the same thing. Now, in Genesis chapter 26, verses 6 through 11, Isaac, their son, is also going to go to Gerar and is going to do the same thing, and the same thing is going to happen to him and Rebekah. So there was a pattern in this family. And maybe when we get there, we'll talk about patterns in our families. And sometimes we make the same mistakes our parents and grandparents did because no one has taken the time to get off that merry-go-round. But the repetition of these stories has caused some people to call them duplicate stories. That it is not three separate events, or in Abraham's case, two, that it is one story that has been told a couple different times, and they were all stitched together in the book of Genesis. We do not believe that is what happened here. This is what you could call the critical, with a capital C, the critical view of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. There's a theory out there that we've mentioned before called the documentary hypothesis. And you know a hypothesis, you remember your science fair thing was the idea of how something works. And the documentary hypothesis says the first five books of the Bible came about through four different versions that were all stitched together. They use the letters J-E-D-P to represent the different authors. One of them is J as in Jehovah. This is the author that uses the covenant name of God when he writes. So any place you see the word Jehovah or Yahweh, then that's from this author. The E stands for the Elohist author, the one who uses Elohim, the more neutral name for God. So every time you see the term Elohim, it's by this author. D stands for the Deuteronomic author, meaning when the Pentateuch was compiled and the book of Deuteronomy was written, there were further edits that were made. And then P stands for the priestly edit. They believe that around the time of Ezra, all these books were brought together. And they say, if you look close enough, you can see all the seams where they were all brought together. Nice hypothesis. However, there are no documents for the documentary hypothesis. For example, we have not found any book of Genesis that just includes J or just J and E. The only ones we have are all four of them together. For example, chapters 18 and 19 were commonly called the J writings because in chapter 18 and 19, during the story of Sodom, they're consistently using the term Jehovah or Yahweh. 
And then in chapter 20, they use the term Elohim for God. And that's why we see duplication according to this theory, that there was only one event, one author wrote about it, another author wrote about it, and then somebody came together and stuck them both, not realizing that they were the same story. This is a very common kind of analysis that you see, especially in the Old Testament. Comes at the New Testament too, but there have been a lot of really great Christian scholars that have pushed back against that in the New Testament, and there's been less success in the Old. And people say this book is it's just been stitched together, it's been fabricated, there's dozens of different authors, different from the ones that we already acknowledge, such as Isaiah and Jeremiah, for example. And it has a really low view of Scripture and a low view of inspiration. And as I said, it has no evidence, but it's a theory. And that's kind of always the case. Somebody comes up with a theory and they come up with evidence that they believe backs up their theory. And usually they'll say something like, I'm sure if we were to study X, Y, and Z, it would confirm this. Well, in the case of the documentary hypothesis, X, Y, Z have been examined and there's nothing there, really. You've probably heard it phrased this way. The Bible was assembled and written hundreds of years after the facts. It's all been corrupted. We cannot know what actually happened because the authors were adjusting things and changing facts to suit their theology. And the authors were not revealing anything. They were just revealing their own biases. Now, that is a theory. But you hear that often stated as fact. And that can be intimidating sometimes. People will say, we know that the Bible was written hundreds of years after the time of Christ. Well, how do we know that? Well, that's what the scholars say. Well, I'm no scholar. I guess I don't know. Well, they're wrong. And in the New Testament in particular, because of this idea of there had to be an evolution of theology, meaning the early church didn't believe Jesus was God, obviously, but the Bible says that he does. So the parts that say he was God had to have been written much later than the other parts. Well, then we start digging in the sand and we start finding older and older and older and older copies of these things. And it turns out that one of the oldest copies of a New Testament document we have comes from the book of John, which has some of the most plain statements that Jesus was God. Now, some people still want to hold on to those things, but what we're finding is that all of these ideas to rip apart the Bible and say it can't be this because of that, and here's my theory and here's my idea, the more you look into it, the more you find out, oh, no, that's actually not the way it was. It used to be very commonly understood that the Jews had changed the Old Testament over time. And that if we could find the old one, it would be way different than the one we have now. Then we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were way older than the ones we have now. And they're just about exactly the same, which blows that theory out of the water, you'd think, but people still hang on to it. Some people look at a passage like this one, and then the one back in 12, and say, it's just different authors, same event, two different stories. And you say, well, how would you know that? And they go, well, look how similar they are. But our answer to that needs to be, well, that's not an argument. That's just saying these are two very similar stories. Right? That this, a lot of times people want to take their conclusion and stick it in the logical process. When in reality, no, all you've proven is that there are two similar stories in the Bible. And they fail to account for the differences in the stories. We've already seen one that Abraham left and went to Egypt because of a famine. Then in this story, he sojourned in the Negev and went to Gerar, not because of a famine. That seems pretty significant to me. We're going to see in verse 13 that Abraham's going to explain this is the kind of thing that him and Sarah did all the time. And my favorite one that people have said is, 
Well, it seems very unlikely. That term seems very unlikely is people's way of saying, I have no proof, but I really think so. It seems very unlikely that Abraham would have done this twice. To which I say, I know what I'm like, and I know that I've done dumb things more than once. I, I, I know governments and families and businesses that have done dumb things more than once. Most of the time when you see these kind of weird theories, they can be debunked with just a little bit of imagination. You know, <laughs> well, how could this happen twice? It's like, I know how it could happen twice. I've done this tons of times. Well, I don't understand how the, he would leave the land twice. Well, I don't have to know why he left the land twice. It's up to you to prove that this is the same thing, not up to me to prove that there's two things, because what we have is a story with two things. So I'm going to stand on what we have, not on what you're imagining we have. And that documentary hypothesis, as it's called, that's sort of old news now. It's been left behind in a lot of places, which is, you know, good riddance. But there's always another one just around the corner. used to be that everybody knew for sure that Paul didn't write any of his letters, and now no one really thinks that much anymore. Now what you're seeing in the Old Testament is people are examining other ancient Near Eastern writings, like of the, uh, the Ugaritic texts and the Babylonians and things like that. All very interesting, but what people end up doing is they interpret the Babylonian thing rather than interpreting Scripture, and they take this interpretation and plant it over there. So there's things you can learn, but you've you got to watch out, you know. And we need to remember what Peter told us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. He said, know this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And you know, that own interpretation thing is, is kind of the trend. It's, it's very postmodern, you know. That everybody writes what they think and what they feel, and it's not necessarily right, it's just what they thought. And Peter comes in and says, no, that's not what happened. The Holy Spirit inspired these authors. So we should not be afraid of new ideas. We should not be afraid of new insights into the Scripture. If we've been wrong, I want to know that I was wrong. But we don't let these new historical ideas drive the bus because they tend not to last very long. And if you hang all of your new ideas on somebody's new interpretation of the culture of the day, then you're going to end up looking very foolish when people look back at you in 100 or 200 years. So when people confront you with this, and I thought we might take a little time to talk about it tonight, when people confront you with the obvious contradictions in the Bible, or the proven facts about the Bible's lack of integrity, take a breath. Calm down, because God has not been beaten yet, and people have been saying that the Bible is going to be debunked for a very long time. So I, I just thought I'd bring that up because it is in here twice, and people will say, that's why you can't trust Genesis. It can't even keep its story straight. That's the other thing. Like, if somebody is editing the thing, don't you think it would be smooth rather than disjointed? I don't see how something being disjointed is evidence of somebody coming through to edit and smooth it out. But anyway, we're going to move on from that. Back to our story. We're in the Philistine city of Gerar. Abraham and Sarah once again lie about their relationship, and Sarah is once again taken into this king's harem. This guy's name is Abimelech, which means my father is king. Avi is like Abba. Jesus told us to call out Abba, father, right? So you add the E ending and it makes it personal. My father and Melech is the word for king. So maybe you've known somebody named Malik. That's a very common name. That's the Arabic word for king. And Arabic and Hebrew, of course, are related languages. So Avi, Melech, my father, the king. And we see a lot of folks in the Bible with this name. 
We see this guy we're going to see in chapter 26. There's another Abimelech. Could be the same guy, but it seems unlikely. Psalm 34 tells us that the king of Gath during the time of David was a guy named Abimelech. Gideon is going to have a son named Abimelech. And Abiathar, the priest, is going to have a son named Abimelech. So a very common name, kind of like Simon's and John's in the New Testament, you know. And it seems when we're talking about these Philistine kings, a lot of them were named Abimelech, which has led a lot of people to conclude that Abimelech is a name like Pharaoh. It's not his real name. It's more of a title. You'd be called the Abimelech, which makes sense because if your king is named my father is king, that's a good claim to the throne. Even in European kings and queens, Henry VIII, right? Henry IX, so Abimelech the Fourteenth, or whatever he was called. But here we find Abraham, righteous Abraham, the friend of God, committing the same dumb sin he committed years before. It seems out of place in this story, doesn't it? We just come out of Abraham interceding for Sodom, watching it be destroyed, having a personal audience with God, and the next thing you know, he's lied and lost his wife again. That seems out of place, and it also kind of seems familiar, because that almost could describe my life, couldn't it? Everything was going great. Why did I do that? I feel like every time I've had trouble with my car, like if I've gotten a ticket or if I've ever been in a fender bender, like all I had to do was look up for one second. All I had to do was not go to the grocery store and just go straight home, and you start thinking about this, you know? Now, not only is this terrible because of the danger to Sarah herself, she's getting hauled off to go be part of this guy's harem with the other wives and concubines. Abraham has put the line of promise at risk. The promised child, Isaac. Now Sarah has been hauled off to be with another man. It's a big deal. One chapter before Isaac's birth, we have one final challenge to the line of promise. You already had Lot's children, who maybe would be the only heirs left for Abraham. We've already got Ishmael, the illegitimate son. There's the threat now of corruption to the line. How could he do this again? And Sarah, who was complicit in this. She didn't just get hauled off. We're going to see they, they conspired together. How could they do this again? Well, haven't you fallen into the same pit more than once? Maybe multiple times? And if you were to tell your younger self, you know, you're going to do this this many times, you'd be like, you're crazy. I'd never do that. Let's not be too quick to judge Abraham. This was a pretty grievous sin to lie and allow your wife to be hauled off by another man. That's a terrible thing to do. But sometimes, despite our best intentions and our sincere desires, you know, you, you really do want to do the right thing, but you just can't. We fall again and again. And you know what is so thankful? The Bible understands that. God gets it. Romans chapter 7, I can't read the whole chapter for time's sake, but he, he describes this struggle that we have. Tell me if this doesn't sound like you sometimes. I'm going to read verse 15 and then verses 18 and 19. Paul said, for I do not understand my own actions. Amen. <laughs> for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know, verse 18, that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. You ever feel that way? For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. When we're living according to the flesh which is what Romans 7 describes, we find ourselves in a perpetual struggle against what we want to do and what we actually do. This could be something as simple as trying to lose weight. 
or trying to kick drugs or trying to control your temper, anything. You fall back again and again, and then the shame and the embarrassment comes, and you're miserable because you did it again. What is wrong with me? I was making all this progress, and now I'm right back where I started. Even after we take it to Christ, you start to see some improvement. You get better. You're handling things better. You're not lacking your self-control. But then one day those habits will just come roaring back and you fall right back into those old paths and patterns of behavior. You have another binge. You have another failure. It's totally understandable to feel ashamed and really down at that point. And Abraham is right there with you. How do you think he felt that night? He's alone. Sarah's not there. Pacing, unable to sleep. Maybe he's too ashamed to pray. You ever been too ashamed of yourself to pray? Like, I can't even pray right now because it'd be like looking my dad in the eye after he caught me doing something. I, I can't do it. Now, we know how we feel. And there are other times where we'll take this and, and go into a big lesson about controlling yourself. There's a place for that. But today I want to ask the question, how does God handle us when we end up in situations like these? And I think the answer might surprise you. It's like clickbait. The answer will surprise you. Because we are so often harsher with ourselves than God is. Isn't that interesting? How sometimes we give ourselves way too much of a pass, but other times we're so hard on ourselves and God's like, lay off, man. I'm not going to be that hard on you. And that's what we're going to see in this story here. Abraham has just allowed his wife to be put into a position of adultery and not really consensual adultery either. Terrible situation. Kind of the thing we talked about last week where you end up in a place where there's not really a good choice to make. You know, you left all your good choices way back behind you. But let's read what happened. Verses 3 through 7. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said, I'd love to have a dream where God appears to me, but I would not want to hear this out of God's mouth. Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands have I done this. And God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you've done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. God shows up to him in a dream and says, you're a dead man. <laughs> I'll put the fear of God into you real quick, won't it? So she's been brought into this guy's harem, this Philistine. But just like what happened with Pharaoh in chapter 12, God is going to intervene. Abimelech has a dream where God says, you're a dead man for stealing somebody else's wife. Now, Abimelech protested, I didn't know she was someone else's wife. He, she said that was her brother, and he said that was his sister. So, I didn't know. Now, it says there he had not approached her, which is a euphemism for the sexual consummation of a marriage. They had not slept together yet. And some people even suggest that Pharaoh had back in chapter 12, but I don't think that it's definite. But this one is very clear that he hadn't. And it's interesting, he says, will you destroy an innocent nation? That word there for people or nation is goy. 
In plural, that's goyim, which is often translated Gentiles or nations. So it's not just himself here, but it seems that his entire nation was being afflicted. Kings have a responsibility for the people that they lead, the same way pastors do for their churches and fathers for their families. Now God's like, listen, I know you didn't do it on purpose. Abraham and Sarah lied to you. <laughs> so Abimelech said, it was my integrity and my innocence. And we're kind of like, well, yes, innocence, but not really integrity. You're going out to take another wife to your harem. So it's, you maybe were better than God was accusing you of being, but that doesn't mean that you were in the right. So it doesn't really get into that, but it is important for us to know. One is enough, fellas. So God knows he did not do this on purpose, but he says, but it wasn't because you're so great that kept you from touching her. God says it was my sovereign hand that did not allow you to do this. Does not say how, but we see in verse 17, Abraham is going to pray for Abimelech and Abimelech, it says, is going to be healed. So Abimelech was probably afflicted physically some way. And there's been all kinds of speculation. There could have been some kind of venereal disease here. It could have been as simple as impotence that God struck him with. But he and everybody in his house needed healing because of what God did. So he's like, oh, I didn't touch her. And God goes, yeah, but you would have if I hadn't have stepped in. I take great comfort in the fact that sometimes God extends his hands to keep us from going over the edge. Can you look back at a point in your life and think to yourself, God was watching out for me because I wasn't watching out for myself. I was hurtling this way, and God grabbed me by the collar and kept me from going. Sometimes he does that through events where you would have, but the situation just didn't present itself because God didn't allow it. Sometimes God just nudges you in your mind. I, I've met r <laughs> raging pagans that will tell me, oh yeah, God told me I shouldn't do that. And so you didn't? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't do that. It's like, yeah, but you've done all this other stuff. And so God, is, God is still working on him. And of course, that's our time to say, how about you stop doing all the stuff that God said not to do? But sometimes a man or a woman will be boastful about how they haven't crossed a certain line. Have you ever met somebody like this? They've got all kinds of sins and issues, but they're very, very proud because they have never stolen anything from their boss at work. Or they're very, very proud because, you know, I, I always take good care of my kids. Yeah, I'll go out and I'll get drunk and I'll get high and I'll fight with the neighbors and, you know, but I, I take good care of my kids. There's always that one thing. They're like, I don't do that. Oh, yes, you know, I'll try pop, but I won't try crack. I mean, I, I draw the line. I have standards, you know. We all do this. But then sometimes you see people in these situations, and then something happens where they go hurtling over the line. It's like you, you went from being very proud of your standards to now you're just all in everything. I think that can be when God removes his restraint from someone's life. Don't be too proud of your obedience. Don't be too proud of the way that you've kept yourself from sin. Because God restrains sin in our lives. Romans chapter 1 talks about him giving people up, which implies that sometimes God is holding people back. 1 Corinthians 5, there was a man who was committing sin in the Corinthian church, and Paul said, deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. He said, pray away God's protection from that guy's life until he gets it together. We've talked at length lately about 2 Thessalonians 2, which talks about the restraint that God has on the devil and the Antichrist. Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who works in you both to will and to do. Don't be too proud of your own obedience. 
It's His Spirit. It's His grace. Don't sit there thinking, oh, I would never do that. And God's like, I know you wouldn't because I have not allowed you to do that. God was willing to overlook Abimelech's ignorant sin if he made it right. God is understanding. Isn't that nice? God doesn't just come in and blast Abimelech. He's like, I know you didn't do it on purpose. But he does insist that he gets it right. Under the law that God would give to Moses, unintentional sins could be forgiven. If you didn't know, if you didn't mean to, it could be forgiven. Passionate sins, even, could be forgiven. If you were having an argument with a man, and you started fighting, and you killed that man, that could be forgiven. But premeditated murder could not be forgiven. You were going to die. You were going to be put to death. Flagrant violations of sin could not be forgiven under the law. And even the ones that could be forgiven, you had to come in and make restitution and provide a sacrifice. The Lord, like, I understand that you didn't mean to. You still got to make it right. I understand you didn't know, but you still got to make it right. I understand it was the heat of the moment, but you still got to make it right. We ought to be always praying that God keeps us from those kinds of sins, the ones that we're just acting ignorantly or presumptuously or passionately. How do we do that? Well, you've got to learn what God has said. Read his word. Be in prayer. Get familiar with the voice of God so that when God is whispering and saying, don't do that, you go, oh, all right, Lord, I won't do that. David put it this way in Psalm 19, verses 12 through 14. Who can discern his errors? I could preach just that. Who can discern his own errors? Really hard for us to see our own problems. You know, we're really good at looking at other people and saying, you know what your problem is? I've only talked to you for 10 minutes, but I think I've got you figured out. But who can discern his own errors? David writes, So Lord, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He says, Lord, I know I'm not good at seeing where I go wrong. Therefore, keep me from the hidden stuff and keep me from the presumptuous stuff. That is, secret and bold sin. He's praying ahead of time that God would shield him and keep him from sin. And that's what we ought to be praying too, asking the Lord to help us and keep us from doing wrong. But God tells him, Abimelech, seek the intercession of Abraham. He says that Abraham is a prophet. This is the Hebrew word navi. And it is the first time we see it used in the Bible. So kind of significant. It was first applied to Abraham. And what's very interesting is that it is immediately tied not to foretelling the future, which is an important part of prophecy, but to prayer. The word there is palal. And it comes from the word to judge somebody, to evaluate somebody or to assess somebody. And when it's in this form, which if you're interested, it's called the Hithpael form. You can look it up. It means to seek someone to make a judgment on somebody else, almost like an attorney, to intervene, to intercede, saying, Your Honor, this is the verdict that we want. That's what it means to intercede. And that's what a prophet's job is to do, is to represent the people to God and God to the people. So Abimelech knows, I need Abraham to pray for me. Which seems odd to us, because Abraham is not really acting like a prophet in the story, is he? Not really seem like a prayerful guy. But God says, you need to go seek his help and let him pray for you. We'll come back to that. But let's read verses 8 through 10. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? 
And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? Like, what did we ever do to you that you would do this to us? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? And we see in verse 8, this was not just a personal thing for Abimelech. This was a disaster for the city of Gerar. These servants, that word there can mean courtiers. So it's not just his help around the house, but the ones that would be in his court, his nobles, his officials. <laughs> and he tells them. Why would he tell them? Because it seems the whole nation was suffering here. The whole city was suffering here. He says, I need healing. The women need healing. Our people need healing. And the reason is I married a prophet's wife. And it says they were all very afraid. These people knew, they, they didn't know the living God, but they knew that God existed or the gods existed. And they had a respect for those that represented him. Something we don't much have today. So he calls Abraham in and he says, what did I ever do to you, man? That you're going to trick me into marrying your wife. You're going to put me in a position of danger. My city is in danger. Look at the rebuke he gives him. These things that ought not to be done. He says, you almost made me commit a great sin. An interesting note, a lot of other cultures from around this area in this time period also would refer to adultery as the great sin. So it, we still get that today. Adultery is a great sin. But Abraham's getting rebuked by a Philistine. Abraham is getting the riot act read to him by a Philistine. Have you ever been caught in a sin by someone less righteous than you? You ever been caught doing something wrong by your boss who does not know God and doesn't even pretend to? And then you're sitting there getting reprimanded rightfully by somebody that doesn't even know Jesus? That is a, an embarrassing place to be. And this used to happen to me in middle school. As I was your average middle school boy, and we got into all kinds of antics. And you know, when you're in middle school, you're experimenting with all sorts of new words and things that you're learning. And whenever I would take it too far... My friends at my lunch table would always say, Oh, Tyler, I thought you were a Christian, man. And now they weren't trying to be mean. They were just trying to be funny. But I would hear that and go, Oh, I am a Christian. I'm so sorry, Lord. And I would I'd have a really rough time. And rightfully so. I didn't have any business acting the way I would act on those days. And it stuck in my brain. Like, I don't want to get rebuked by these heathens that I eat lunch with every day. I'm supposed to be the, the pastor's son. I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm the one that stands up for righteousness and reads my Bible in class. And here I am cutting up and doing the same things they are. There's a story that I'm not going to read for time's sake. But in 2 Chronicles 35, Josiah, King Josiah, the best king outside of David that the nation ever had. He is the one that restored the temple. He tore down the high places. He brought the law of God back to the people. He was a godly, godly man. But there comes a time where Pharaoh is going to war with somebody who is not Josiah, but he's got to take his army through the land of Judah. And maybe you can understand why Josiah would be angry, but he rides out with his army to fight Pharaoh. Like, you're, not, you're not going through my country. And Pharaoh Necho says to him, God, your God, has sent me out to go and fight this battle. I got no beef with you. Why are you going to come out and get crushed? And Josiah did not listen. It says he did not listen to the words of God that came from Pharaoh. And Josiah died in that battle. 
Josiah was a righteous man, but apparently he was too proud to recognize the voice of God coming from somebody that he deemed to be less spiritual than him. There are times where God uses an Abimelech or a Pharaoh Necho or Balaam or Pontius Pilate standing there with Jesus and says, Behold your king, shall I crucify your king? Now, those are the words of God coming through Pilate. You ought to be in touch with God so that even when his voice comes from an unlikely place, you can recognize it. And let the fear of being chastised by an unbeliever keep you from sinning in the first place. I can think of some people that I have stood up and, and, and addressed their sin and talked about the gospel. And I mean, all you people here, <laughs> you know, I do that every week. And the thought of y'all catching me in something and I've got to then sit there and, and, and break your heart. But even more, some of those folks I used to work with on the junk truck, if they were to ever catch me doing something I shouldn't or going somewhere I shouldn't, that, that would almost be worse. I used to stand up to them every day and tell them that they were wrong for doing X, Y, and Z and they hated me for it. Last thing I want to hear is one of those, well, 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 look who it is. Shame can be a powerful motivator if you let it. And we never want to feel ashamed, which should not cause us to say, therefore, it's wrong to shame anybody. Therefore, it should say, don't do anything that's shameful, right? Well, verse 11, what does Abraham have to say for himself? <laughs> verse 11, Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place. Who's afraid of God in this story, Abraham or Abimelech? And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Well, Abraham offers up a bunch of excuses. And it's very similar here to Genesis chapter 3, isn't it? Lord, it's the woman you gave me. He says, Lord, it's the serpent in the garden. Once again, we see one of God's people blaming other people for their own sin. He even implies that it was God's fault. You see that? He says, if God hadn't sent me out of my homeland where everybody knew me, I wouldn't have to worry about this. And it's, of course, ironic. He said there's no fear of God at all in this place. While in this story, Abimelech is very afraid of God because God told him he was a dead man the night before. And Abraham is afraid of Abimelech. He doesn't fear God. He, he is more afraid of what Abimelech will do to him in the flesh than what God can do to his eternal soul. And so he sinned. That's why Jesus told us, don't be afraid of people that can hurt your body but can't hurt your soul. Be afraid of the one in heaven who can destroy both your body and your soul. And then in verse 12, he says, well, I mean, by the way, she is my half-sister. So I, di I didn't lie. I just told half of the truth. The irrelevant half. Saw this back in, I believe it was chapter 11 when we're getting Terah's genealogy, that she was his half-sister. Terah had, I guess, more than one wife, it would seem, and one of those daughters was Sarai, whose name was changed to Sarah. Later on in Leviticus 18 and other places, the law is going to prohibit what's called endogamy, which is marrying within your family in, a, in close relations. But at this point, God had not spoken about that yet. So we're not really going to talk about that right now, other than to say God has made it clear, not a good idea. And then thousands of years later, science found out, oh yeah, it's actually really bad for you to do that too. And you can mess up your genetics with your kids. So God knew what he was talking about. And lest we get all chivalrous in this story and say, poor Sarah, poor, poor Sarah. 
She's such a victim. I mean, she was kind of, but we see in verse 13 that they had cooked up this plan together. Just like in the last one. She, she didn't just get put upon. She was participating in this sin. She went along with it. Maybe she thought it was the right thing. Maybe she didn't, but she did it. All of these excuses, they're telling half-truths. He's, I was afraid you were going to kill me. I saw the Philistines. I knew what y'all were like. They all sound great before this situation. They all made a lot of sense beforehand. It sounds wise. But when you're exposed, all your excuses sound really lame, don't they? When your dad would say, why did you do that? And you know, but you're not going to tell him. Because it sounds stupid coming out of your mouth in that situation. Same thing here with Abraham. So often we've got these thoughts of what we will do. And we can get all boastful. Hey, if I was ever in that situation, you know what I would do? I'm not going to let that happen to me. And it sounds real tough. It sounds real smart. Sounds real worldly, you know. But then we get exposed and they sound ridiculous. Very easy to rationalize sin. But you're not supposed to strive to protect yourself and take care of yourself. You're supposed to strive for holiness and obedience and leave the rest of it to a sovereign God. Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He says, I know that you need food. I know that you need clothes. I know that you need a job. I know that you need safety. Seek my kingdom first. That way you're not going to seek any of those other things the wrong way. Whatever Abraham thought he would gain by sinning, he almost lost by sinning. Let God provide for you. You do what's right. You don't compromise. It's a sinful world, and when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. No, you do what's right. The Lord has called us to be those that are outside of all that. Abraham was supposed to be a sojourner among these people, living differently, living righteously, not like everybody else. Verse 14, coming to the end here. Verse 14, Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. So this is similar to Egypt. Abraham is given gifts from Abimelech, cattle and slaves and money, except it is different because when he was in Egypt, you'll remember all that stuff was given to him first as a bride price for Sarai. This time, it's almost like hush money. It's compensation. Here's a lot of things. I need you to pray for me because I'm a dead man if you don't. So here's a lot of stuff. That's a key difference. And Abimelech does not drive them out of the land like Pharaoh did. Chapter 12 at the end, Pharaoh said, here's your wife, now get out. I don't want you back here ever again. Abimelech says, look, here's my land. Live wherever you want. Remember, Abraham was a sojourner. He pitched tents. He had cattle. And he didn't really stay in the city. So he's like, wherever you want to stay, bro, you just stay. It's all good. And he tells Sarah, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Maybe that's one final jab. Here, give this to your brother, okay? One thousand pieces of silver, that is one thousand shekels. That's a lot of money. Babylon had their shekels uh, priced that you got half a shekel a month if you were a laborer. This might not be the same currency exactly, but the idea is it's a lot of money, okay? And it says in the ESV, this is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all. Literally there, that's, this is a covering of the eyes for all. And I think that the ESV translated it one good way, which is it's, it's a 
covering of, of the guilt that you know, no one is going to look at you and think you did anything wrong. I think it also could be a covering of the eyes to mean it's going to keep anybody else from looking at you with the same lust that I looked at you. This is going to remind everybody, don't mess with Sarah. Once again, even though Abraham and Sarah had sinned, they walk away from it even richer than before. <laughs> it almost seems backwards, doesn't it? God blessed them, of course, not because of their behavior, but in spite of it. I am a testimony myself of God's willingness to offer second and third and tenth and hundred and tenth chances to his people. Where would we be without that? We're going to look at Abraham and we're going to say, he didn't deserve any of that. You want to turn around to your own life and say, he don't deserve none of that. Psalm 103 verses 13 and 14 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Why? For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows that it's hard not to sin because you come from a long line of sinners. God gets it and he's compassionate to you. You ever be out in public and you see some parent getting mad at their kid for doing something that's just something kids do? You know, the kid's four years old and trips on their shoelaces. Why can't you tie your shoes? Like, he's four, you know? Why would you spill that? Kids spill things, you know? It's what they do. And it, it can be frustrating, but we have compassion towards kids. And God's like that with us. We can be like David. When Nathan the prophet came to David after he had sinned with Bathsheba and said, you know, there's a man that stole his neighbor's pet lamb and cooked it for dinner. And David says, off with his head! And Nathan goes, yeah, well, guess what? You killed your friend and stole his wife. So what should happen to you, David? Whenever we hear our own sin on somebody else's life, we get really mad. I ought to be punished! should never be allowed to get away with that. Except me. I should be allowed to get away with that. You know, God himself doesn't do that to us. God himself is not so harsh. It's so easy to stand up and preach against sin. In some ways, it's hard. In other ways, it's very easy. To find something that you all know is wrong, for me to stand up here and just yell at it for an hour, it would be easy. God is the one that shows grace. They didn't even like Jesus' grace very much when he was alive. Remember the Pharisees? If you knew what that woman was like, you wouldn't let her touch you. And Jesus is like, yeah, well, whoever's forgiven much loves much. Now, if we're going to say we're going to keep sinning because God will always forgive us, and I have heard people say that sentence, how can you do this? Well, God will forgive me. That is a reprehensible thing. And Romans 6.1 says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Of course not. Are you crazy? And that would be a mark of somebody who is not regenerate, I would say. Instead, it allows us to proceed knowing that our sins are forgiven at the cross and that Jesus' blood lets us keep trying without the threat of hell being held over our heads. Isn't that wonderful? You can keep trying. You take your sin seriously, and you try your best. But in Romans 7, Paul says, I've got all this battle, but I know that it's not me. It's my, my sin. Paul's like, my sin's not part of me anymore because of what Jesus did. When I was in high school, we went to a summer camp, and they had a trapeze. And this guy would get up there, and he'd do all these flips and catch it and jump to the next one. And now it was our turn to try. And you might think, I could never ever do that because I'll fall and smack my head on the ground and I'm going to die and so I'm not going to try but of course you all know there was a big giant net underneath so I got a couple chances to get up and keep trying until I got pretty good at it there's always a threat of me falling so there was always a net that's God's grace 
You're called to do something impossible. Jesus has shown you how to do it. You're like, I can't do that. And Jesus says, just get up and try. Don't worry about the, the flips and the you know, loop-de-loops. Just try and hold on. Can you try that? Okay, you fell. Let's get up and let's try it again. That's grace. Matthew 18, 21 and 22, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Peter thinks he's so spiritual. Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven. If Jesus would tell us to forgive each other that much, and in Luke 17, 4, he makes clear he means on the same day. If some guy does the same thing to you seven times in the same day, I expect you to forgive him every single time. If Jesus told us to do that for one another, how much greater is God's forgiveness for us? You have lifelong habits and theories in your mind that God has to break. And if you spent a lifetime building up this habit of sin, most of the time it's not going to break in one day. You've got to get up there on the trapeze and fall a bunch of times. God has given you his spirit and his grace to keep going and to improve. So y'all don't fret, just keep going. You are out of the frying pan. You are out of the fire. All that's left is grace. God blessed Abraham despite his sin. God delights and loves you too, despite your sin. And verses 17 and 18 now. Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So Abraham intercedes. He's healed his whole harem. So how it worked back then, you had your wife, but then you had your hundred-something concubines, which were not legitimate, but they were there for you to have sex with. It's also ironic that Sarah's womb has been closed all this time, and yet Abraham's prayer for the Philistines is answered. Do you think she was maybe a little saddened by that? Or it's entirely possible because the next chapter we're going to see her have a baby that this prayer not only opened up the wombs of the Philistines, but of Sarah too. And the last thing I want us to see here is what I'd referenced before. Abraham's prayer was what delivered Abimelech from Abraham's mistake. Why is that? You'd expect Abraham to be reprimanded and maybe even punished. But in fact, not only is he blessed, but God is on his side. This is a clear picture of what's called the sovereign election of God. God had chosen Abraham to be his guy. And so God was on Abraham's team. The same would be true of Israel. Even when Israel was in the wrong, God was still their God. Your relationship with your wife and your children, you're on their team. You might get into a situation and you know your wife is wrong, but it doesn't matter. That's between her and me. You leave her alone. You're on teams, right? Deuteronomy 7, God makes clear, I didn't pick you because you're great people. I picked you because I love you. Nations could only push Israel so far before God judged them. Abimelech could not touch Sarah, even though he didn't understand the situation. That's election. God on your side because he has said, I'm on your side and for no other reason. That's good news for you and me. Because if we are in Christ Jesus, we too have been chosen and elect by God. God is on your team. John 15, 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Isn't that wonderful? 
In Ephesians 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He's blessed us in the Beloved. Now we here hold to what you'd call a mediating position between you know, Calvinism and Arminianism, free will and sovereignty of God. But that mediating position should never prevent you from reveling in the fact that God picked you and now you're on God's team. Amen? God is on your team, or rather he's picked you to be on his. God was picking his dodgeball team and he picked you. I'm not very good. doesn't matter. I picked you. You're on my team. Isn't that awesome? I love that. He fights for you. He helps you along. He empowers you. He forgives you. And he will not permit you to be harassed for long because he loves you. There can be times when you've made a major mess and you've got no excuses, but God still comes in and blesses you. Have you ever had a situation like that? You, you not only didn't do the right thing, you did the exact wrong thing. And yet you come out of that situation better than you went into it. Why? Did you earn that? No. God just loves you that much. It's his grace. You're his kid. You're the bride of his son, Jesus. We've got to understand this because we're like Abraham. We're going to fall into sin. Sometimes you're going to fall multiple times into the same dumb thing. It's not your obedience that saves you. It's God's grace that saves you. Grasping that truth will set you free like nothing else will. It'll cause your heart to just bloom in love for God. And it will give you a desire for true obedience. Because you're doing the right thing, not because you're afraid you're going to be punished. You're doing the right thing because you are free to do the right thing. And because of everything that God has done for you, and you're so grateful, you just want to please and serve Him. God was on Abraham's team even when he was in the wrong. And God is on your team even when you are in the wrong. Oh, I don't know about that. Yeah. Is God on Jesus' team? Yes, he is. Are you in Christ Jesus? Yes, you are. Therefore, the Lord is on your side. God allowed Abraham to be chastised but not destroyed. And the same thing is true for you and me. So in this last story, before the birth of Isaac, we see Abraham fail to remind us that this baby they were about to have was not because Abraham had finally earned it. In fact, he was still the same rascal he'd been the whole time but because of God's sovereign work. It was not his own righteousness. It was God's grace. So if you have failed repeatedly, and sometimes you feel like you just can't go on, remember that God's grace is over your life and he's chosen you. He's not going to give up on you. This doesn't lead to licentiousness and doing whatever I want because God picked me. Sometimes we've got to warn against that. But I'd say most of us today are in danger of being afraid that someday God's going to ball us up and throw us away and say, I'm done with you. Take the reassurance. God's got you in his hands. Don't be afraid of your sin. Unless your sin is greater than the blood of Jesus Christ, it will not overcome you. You have the love of the Father, the power of the Holy Spirit by the blood of Jesus. You are forgiven, and the locus of your sin is no longer within your soul. God sees it as being outside. That gives us a net to keep trying and the hope of eternal deliverance because God has chosen to love us. We did not earn the love of God.